All right, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the ability to open up your word once again this morning and to look at the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus as we study the Gospels. Uh, I I can't think of a better start to the morning than to look at uh, the manner of Jesus' life and and the words that he spoke. And so we thank you for this privilege, and, and we especially thank you as we remember that so many believers throughout history Uh, were either illiterate or didn't have a printed Bible in their language, and we're in a position of incredible privilege to be able, all of us, to open up your sacred word uh, to these pages and read them and and have them accessible to us. And so we pray that we wouldn't take that for advantage, but um, that you would uh, give us a deep appreciation for the scriptures and and a deep attention to the words spoken in them this morning. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, yesterday, uh, we're we're back in Matthew 13, by the way. Um, Yesterday, we looked at a number of parables, um, and uh, we looked at the parable of the sower. We looked at the parable of the weeds. Um, It could be good test questions um, to either uh, say, hey, explain one of these parables to me, or it could be a good test question to have you match things. So... um, you know, I, I, I could ask um, which parable, uh, I mean, some of those would be really easy questions, wouldn't it? Uh, which parable has weed and weeds growing <laughs> up together? And you say, the parable of the weeds. Uh, you know, probably, probably would be pretty easy test questions. I, I might also um, throw in some matching for, like, the parable of the weeds. Um, what does the good seed represent? And you would have to match it to the sons of the kingdom. Uh, what does the barn represent? And you would have to match it to heaven, stuff like that. Um, those, would be, those would be probably good things to look over before your test on Friday. Um, we're going to go over um, very fast some of these other parables that Jesus tells in chapter 13. We've gone through the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds. Um, somebody read for us. Chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. 13, 31, and 32. Good, thank you. Um, the mustard seed is what? It says it's the what of all seeds. The smallest. Anybody ever seen a mustard seed before? Very small. Very tiny. And uh, Christ is saying the kingdom of heaven is like that. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It starts off super, super small. And you plant a mustard seed, and uh, can, can you see it down in the ground? No. No, it's almost unobservable. And then it grows, and it grows kind of slowly. You know, you wake up the next morning, and do you have a tree yet? No, it's going to take time. So the kingdom of heaven is something that has small, almost unnoticeable, seemingly insignificant beginnings, but eventually it grows into the largest of all the trees so that all the animals, all the birds, come and take shelter in it. Um, It looks to me like Jesus in this parable is alluding back um, to the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar describes, you guys remember Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon? Babylon takes over like all of the known world. 
and he sets himself up as king, and he describes himself as a tree, and all of the nations, represented by animals, have taken shelter in him. And so this is probably one of those places where Matthew is being very pro-Gentile. The animals in the book of Daniel that take shelter under Nebuchadnezzar are Gentile nations. And here, Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like this giant tree and all the animals take shelter under it, probably a reference again to Gentile nations. Um, It is interesting, um, if you took this parable, um, does Jesus think that the kingdom of heaven is going to be a big thing or a small thing? A big thing. The kingdom of heaven, um, we've talked already about what the kingdom is. It's expressed in this day and age through the church, the people who have come into Christ's kingdom as his subjects and recognize his authority and lordship. And so there is an idea in this parable that as time goes on, the church is going to be successful in her mission. Uh, It has small, unnoticed beginnings, Middle East in the, you know, Jesus is growing up in backwater Israel, right? Uh, You know, he's, he's growing up in the sweet water of his day and age. And he's got how many followers? Very small, seemingly insignificant start. But eventually, this is going to grow into a a giant movement. It seems like Jesus is very optimistic about what his gospel will do in the world and how his church will grow. Um, Somebody read verse 33 for us. Hmm. 33. Yeah. Um, do you guys know what leaven is? Yeah. What does it make bread do? Rice. Rice. We're making sourdough right now. And it's kind of fun to see it in the jar and you go to bed and then you come back and there's that much more because <laughs> it's gotten that much bigger. Right. Um, So yeast uh, or leaven is what makes bread rise. Uh, In the Old Testament, is leaven a good thing or a bad thing? Bad. Bad. Do you make bread with leaven for like the Passover? No. No, It's very important. In the Jewish festivals, you use unleavened bread. Um, When you're making bread, do you take an entire bag of yeast and pour it in to the bread that you're making? How much do you use? A tiny amount. Sprinkle just a little bit in. Because what does the leaven do? Yeah, it expands and it spreads throughout your entire mixture. So um, leaven is usually considered, uh, you know, not a kosher thing. You don't use it for the Jewish festivals. In fact, at times in the Old Testament, leaven is associated with non-Israelites, which is Gentiles. So the kingdom of heaven is here positively being compared to leaven, another pro-Gentile parable. Um, It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. Um, So as the leaven grows and it expands and it spreads throughout that mixture, can you see that happening? Not really. Uh, You ever tried to watch paint dry? Yeah, it'd be about like that. You put the you put the yeast in your bread, and then you just sit there to watch it spread throughout the bread and watch the bread rise. Uh, it's going to happen slowly. It's going to happen over time. 
At first, it's not going to be noticeable, but eventually, what's going to happen to the entire mixture? It's all going to rise. The leaven is going to spread throughout all of it, and it's all going to rise. The kingdom of heaven, again, uh, is something that is going to grow. It's something that's going to grow in unnoticed and small ways, but it's something that eventually is going to lead to growth um, for, for all. And again, this seems to be uh, talking about how Gentiles will play a big role in this uh, as the leaven is being used positively. Questions on those two parables? Both pro-Gentile, both talking seemingly about how Gentiles have a place in Christ's church and in his kingdom, and uh, both of them seem very positive about the effect the gospel will have in the world and about the growth of Christ's kingdom. I'm skeptical. I'll go ahead and tell you this. You'll really learn this next semester. I am skeptical of end-time theologies where the church and the gospel seemingly lose. I'm skeptical of end-time theologies that make it out to be everything gets worse and worse and worse, and the church and the gospel have no success in the world, and eventually there's like two believers left, and then Jesus comes back and fixes everything. I don't see that personally, in Scripture. I think Jesus is very optimistic about the effect that his gospel and his church will have in the world. I think the Old Testament prophets are super optimistic about that, and I think the book of Revelation is as well. So we'll see that more whenever we get to Revelation. We're going to have like an entire, not an entire nine weeks, but we're going to have a lot of time where we go through Revelation um, passage by passage. And usually whenever I do that, people get mad at me because um, all of the really weird stuff in Revelation has a pretty simplistic meaning. And they're like, huh, this is like less cool than I thought it would be. And then I say, sorry, but I think this is what's right. So um, not really sorry. But anyways, we'll get to that later. Yeah, sorry you're disappointed. Not sorry for, you know, accurately explaining what's happening in this passage. Um, Somebody read for us uh, verse 44. Yep. Thank you. Um, in the parables that we have read so far, when a person is acting, who does the person represent? So parable of the sower. There was somebody who was sowing the seed. There was a farmer. Who did that represent? Jesus. In the parable of the wheat and the weeds, there was somebody who planted the wheat. Who did that represent? Jesus. Uh, in the parable of the mustard seed, there's a tree that gives shelter to all of the nations. It represents Christ's kingdom, but who's the head of Christ's kingdom? Jesus. Who is the one that's giving shelter to all the nations? He's Christ. Um, in the parable of the leaven, a woman puts a little bit of leaven in the bread. Uh, the leaven represents the kingdom of heaven, and it spreads and fills the entire container. Uh, who would the woman who, who starts the kingdom, who starts the leaven, who would the woman represent? Jesus. In this parable, there is an actor. There is a person who finds a treasure in a field and then gives all that he has and, 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 and then goes and buys the field. The way that this parable is typically taught is that you are the person. 
And you have found a great treasure. It's the gospel. It's the kingdom. And you should sell all that you have. You should forsake everything else in order to purchase the gospel, in order to purchase the kingdom. You should leave behind the world. You should leave behind all else if only having Jesus. Forsaking all, take, take Christ and his gospel. That's how it's usually preached. That's how it's usually taught. You are the person. Uh, so turn away from worldly things and turn to the gospel. Give up all if you have to for the sake of the gospel. I don't think that's the right reading of the parable. Because who has been the main actor in every parable so far? Jesus. Jesus has been. Here's how I think this parable is supposed to be read. Jesus comes from heaven to earth with one purpose. To purchase a people for himself. To redeem them from sin and death. And does Jesus have to sell all in order to do that? Does he have to sacrifice everything in order to do that? Where does he have to go? To the cross. But the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 says that he endured the cross for the what that was set before him. No. For the joy that was set before him. He endured the suffering. As Jesus was on the cross, he was thinking forward to what he was buying. He was thinking forward to what he was purchasing, us. And he could die with joy, knowing that he would one day see his people in glory and would have the satisfaction of that. I think that Jesus in this parable is the one who sacrifices everything for the sake of the kingdom. I think in this parable, Jesus is the one who sells all that he has so that he can buy us back. I think that's the correct reading. Uh, I think that's also the correct reading of the next parable. Someone read verses 45 and 46 for us. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Yeah, this is usually preached the same way. You are the merchant, so be willing to sell all that you have and sacrifice all that you have, if only to have the gospel. Uh, Again, I think that throughout these parables, the main actor has consistently been Jesus. Jesus. I think Christ is the one who laid aside the glories and riches of heaven, who sacrificed his, his status as as, as the exalted one at the Father's right hand in order to come to earth and live a life of abject poverty and then give everything up in order to go to the cross and, and, and sell his comfort, sell his glory, sell his life in order to die and purchase for himself a people. Uh, I think this becomes even clearer, verses 47 through 50. Who can read that for us? Yeah, I think this one is very similar to the um, parable of, of the weeds, all right? Uh, the, the net is cast, all right, uh, and many people are gathered up, symbolized by the fish, 
there are many people who come into the church and say that they're part of Christ's kingdom and recognize his lordship, but then whenever they get to shore, the good and the bad are separated. Uh, Coming to shore, I think, symbolizes the end of the age. The angels come out, separate the evil from the righteous. Uh, The evil are thrown into the fiery furnace, just like the weeds were thrown into the fire. Um, But the good are gathered in uh, with the fishermen. They're taken with the fishermen, uh, which is a symbol of us being taken with Christ into glory. Um, In verses 51 and 52, Jesus says, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes, and they are lying through their teeth. They do not understand these things, but they, they lie and they say, yes, we do. And Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. Here, Jesus tells a final parable, and this one is clearly centered on his people. They are scribes who have been trained for the kingdom of heaven, and they are like masters of a house who bring out treasures new and treasures that are old. I think that what this symbolizes is something along these lines. Um, In the Old Testament, God's people received a number of old promises. And whenever we become believers, we receive those promises. But in the gospel, we receive even bigger and better new promises. You guys know the language of Old Covenant, New Covenant, right? The old promises of God and the new promises of God. Those who believe on Christ and become part of his kingdom have both the old promises and the new ones. There's no shortage of the promises of God and what he'll do for his people. Uh, Verses 53 through 58, um, Jesus has been ministering in the city of Capernaum. He decides to travel back to his hometown of Nazareth. Whenever he gets there, he begins teaching in the synagogue, but the people are scandalized by him. They say, where did this man get this sort of wisdom in teaching? This is Joseph's son, the carpenter, and they're offended by him in verse 57. And so Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household, and Jesus will leave Nazareth never to return again. He goes home and he preaches to the people who knew him growing up and they don't want to hear it. You've heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. Those that are most familiar with you are sometimes those who least want to hear you. Sometimes if you're around someone a lot, that breeds contention between the two of you. These people change Jesus' diaper in synagogue Sunday school, right? These people saw him growing up as, as as a young kid. These people, you know, were friends of Mary and Joseph, and now their son is telling them uh, that they need to repent and bringing this new teaching to them. They're scandalized by it. They're offended by it. And Jesus leaves. Uh, In chapter 14, uh, we have the story of John the Baptist being beheaded, and and Jesus learns about it, and he withdraws from the region further. the threat of persecution has arisen, but it's not yet his time to be put to death. So he withdraws. Uh, he feeds the 5,000. We'll talk about that story in the other Gospels in more detail. Uh, and then we also have the story after he feeds the 5,000, his disciples are on a boat. He stays behind to pray. A uh, storm strikes in the middle of the night, and Jesus walks on water. Eventually, Peter will too. 
Uh, we will cover that story in more detail in the other Gospels as well. Yes. I really don't know. You asked that a few a few days ago, and yeah, I I've been trying to chew over that, and I would expect that story to be in Mark, but again, Mark condenses everything, and and that part of the story is kind of focused more on Peter than on Jesus, and Mark's gospel really kind of condenses everything to be very focused on Jesus. Like John the Baptist hardly gets any airtime in, in in Mark, so. Um, you know, his ministry is very condensed. Um, anything, any of the stories relating specifically to the disciples and Mark is condensed. So that would be my best guess, but I, I don't know. My, my best guess is um, Mark is short and just really wants to hammer Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Um, and stories that would detract from that, he's not interested in, in giving. Um, we want to skip ahead to Matthew 15, verse 21 and following. Um, this is a very odd story about Jesus and a Canaanite woman. What does he call her? Anybody remember from their reading? What does Jesus call the Canaanite woman? A dog. dog. Is that a a compliment? No. No. You know, uh, ladies, if one of your male classmates called you a dog... Uh, that is a, for us especially, that is a soft version of, of profane word, right? Uh, that is not a compliment. So uh, this is, maybe we would look at this and say this seems kind of out of character for Jesus. What characteristics would you say have kind of described Jesus to this point in Matthew's gospel? Gentle. Kind. Gentle, kind, what did you say? Humble. Kind, what did you say? Loving. What's the one about uh, your uh, your belly? Uh, there's a, there's huh? there's a word about like your stomach being turned upside down. Oh, I remember that. Compassionate, right? Um, you look at something and it bothers you to the point that it's like you feel it in your gut. Compassion, right? This is one of the mo- that's one of the most used words about Jesus in the New Testament and God in the Old Testament. By the way compassionate. I think that that is actually the um, God as compassionate I'm pretty sure is the most common description of God throughout the Bible Genesis to Revelation. So like I did an exercise one time um, with some students and I put the word God up here and I said let's do a word association. What word comes to mind whenever you think about God? And so some of them um, had had bad church experiences. So the first word that they put up there was judgmental or wrathful. Some of them said fatherly or loving or or kind or things like this. Um, Nobody used the word compassionate. And so that was my um, kind of lead into a a lesson on God's compassion and what does compassion mean and why is it good that God is compassionate towards us. so these are things that we've seen characterize Jesus, and now he's calling a woman a dog. Hmm. All right. This is one of those places where we have a choice. We can either read over this quickly. Three choices. One, read over it really quickly. Say, that's weird. Bothers me a little bit. Just never going to think about it again. Two, uh, we can approach it with a degree of skepticism. 
hmm, weird thing in the Bible. Huh, maybe I shouldn't believe it or something like that. Maybe, maybe there's two different Jesuses that are being presented in Scripture, a contradiction or something. Or three, we can notice this is a very, very odd story, and we can, with humility, say there might be something that we are not seeing in this text. We're going to go with that third option, and I'm going to show you what you're not seeing in the text. Ready? Verse 21 opens. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Anybody know about Tyre and Sidon? Yeah, they're kind of northwest of Israel. Uh, Good guys or bad guys in the Old Testament? Very bad. Um, There is a famous person from Tyre and Sidon. It's one of Israel's queens. We don't get much information about Israel's queens, but there's one that's very prominent. Anybody want to guess? Jezebel. Jezebel. That is Jezebel's hometown. Uh, Jezebel, the type of lady you guys, you, you, you fellows want to marry one day? <laughs> Who said yes? Did somebody say yes? Oh, no. Okay. Izzy says, yes. Izzy says, I want to be Jezebel. Powerful and strong and murders people. And, uh, yeah. That's not a good... It's like Bloody Mary, but like biblical. What? Actually, you're not wrong. I know I'm not wrong. Yeah, that actually is a pretty good... Uh, the, the Protestants in England living under Bloody Mary um, definitely made that comparison. Um, and, and then some other very harsh comparisons. Um, John Knox, especially, uh, really, I think he just called Mary Jezebel. I don't know if he ever called her Mary. I think he just referred to her as Jezebel. So anyways, all right. So Jesus is in Tyre and Sidon, very wicked places, very evil places. They're port cities. They're super rich. Uh, they're very, they're compared to Sodom and Gomorrah throughout scripture. Like that's how bad Tyre and Sidon are. And behold, in verse 22, and behold, a what woman? Canaanite woman. Um, The Gospel of Mark calls her a Syrophoenician, which means that she uh, has some Philistine in her too. So this, like, just kind of listen to these terms. A woman from the region of Canaan, specifically of Philistine descent, and lives in Sidon and Tyre. Three strikes and you are out. You would think. A Canaanite woman from that region came out and she was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Uh, Canaanite Philistine people usually like David? No. No. Uh, What is this show about her if she's calling him Lord, son of David? Yeah, there's something different uh, from her than like regular Philistines, Canaanites. She's recognizing that Jesus is a kingly figure. She is showing some level of respect to the line of David, which her people would not typically do. Um, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a Demon. demon. Verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. So she's crying to him, begging him to do this, and he cold shoulders her. He doesn't say anything. And his disciples came 
and begged him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. Basically, the disciples say, she's annoying us. Make her leave. And Jesus, in verse 24, says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Israel. Jesus' primary mission in his earthly ministry is to preach and teach to what group? Israelites. Now, does Jesus have a Gentile ministry in Matthew? Does he interact with some Gentiles from time to time? But even whenever he sends his original disciples out, they're supposed to go specifically to the lost sheep of Israel. There is an idea that the promises of the Old Testament were first made to the Israelites, so they kind of get first dibs on the gospel. All right. Now, later, the, at the end of Matthew, Jesus will say, don't just go to the lost sheep of Israel, go to where? All nations. But the gospel originally goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So he says, I'm here for the lost sheep of Israel, not for a Syrophoenician Canaanite woman from Sidon and Tyre. In verse 25, she comes and she does what before him? Kneels before him probably a symbol of worship, and she simply says, Lord, help me. Verse 26, he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. All right. Cold shoulders her, calls her a dog. I'm only here for the Israelites, not for you. What is he going to do by the end of the story? Kill the daughter and answer, right? So, uh, is this like racist, unwilling Jesus? By the end of the story, he winds up doing what she's asking him to do, but there's this weird conversation in between. Let's think about this for a minute. Um, Flip back with me to Genesis chapter 9. Yes, it is. Genesis 9, the flood has ended. Noah and his family have gotten off the ark. Noah gets super drunk, and he winds up naked on the floor of his tent. You guys remember that? And one of his sons walks in and dishonors him. Do you remember which son? You've got Shem, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Who was it? It was Ham. And in Genesis 9, Noah speaks in verse 25... And he doesn't curse all of Ham's descendants. Ham has one son. And he curses one of Ham's sons and says, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. That curse, even though Noah is the one who spoke it, that curse appears throughout the Old Testament as being a valid curse that is put on Canaan. Whatever Ham did was bad. We don't really know exactly what Ham did to Noah, but whatever he did was bad enough that his line is put under God's judgment for at least a period of time. Is that pretty bad? Yeah. I think that Ham... I I think that Ham does something that is is very gross and dishonoring to his father. Um, I think that that Ham potentially 
uh, abuses Noah in some way. I think that's what the text looks like he did. Okay. So Canaan is cursed for this. Throughout the book of Genesis, God later will promise the land of Canaan to one of Shem's descendants, Abraham. Now, do Ham's descendants, do the people of Canaan have opportunities to become right with the Lord throughout the Old Testament? Yes. Can you think of any of them that do? Who? They go into the, okay. The land of Canaan is promised to Abraham and his descendants. They finally take the land in the days of who? Joshua. How many years after the promise to Abraham? 400. 400 years for the Canaanites to repent, become right with the Lord. They're under a judgment. They're under a curse because of this great atrocity that's been committed. But God is not just leaving them without any hope of, of, of repentance. He gives them 400 years to repent before Joshua and his people march in. Over those 400 years, you know what the Canaanites do? Do they get better? They get worse. They get way worse. Joshua marches in. And the book of Joshua in chapter 11 says that any of the Canaanites that wanted to had the opportunity to surrender and repent. Can you think of any Canaanites that do that? Rahab, and not only Rahab, her entire household. Literally, the text in Joshua 2 and Joshua 6 says anyone who runs into your house will be saved. So probably some people from outside of her household get saved too. Chapter 8 of Joshua talks about how many sojourners were with uh, Joshua and Israel as they continued their conquest. They fought against Joshua and they fought against a city called Ai. And then in chapter 8, there's many sojourners who were part of Israel at that point. What does that tell you about Jericho and Ai? Rahab and her family repented and got included. What else does that tell you? There were some other people that got included in Israel. And not just some. It says many. Right? Joshua 9, four Canaanite cities surrender to Joshua and repent. And all four cities get spared. Later in the Old Testament, uh, one of the cities uh, that Joshua destroys is called Hazor. Later in the Old Testament, Hazor is still around. Joshua destroyed it pretty badly, but he left a lot of survivors there. Within 20 years, Hazor is a major power again. Uh, later in the Old Testament, there's a guy that's a friend of David, Uriah the what? Hittite. So that implies the Hittites were a Canaanite group. What happened to some of the Hittites? They repented and joined Israel. Yeah, they repented and joined Israel. All right. Over and over again, we see that whenever they marched into Canaan, all right, there was a curse on, on the people of Canaan. God's judgment was coming for them, but... God's judgment didn't hit all of them because several of them, many of them, repented and became part of Israel. So in Genesis 9, this curse is valid. Uh, Noah curses the Canaanites, and there is a curse on Canaanites. The only way a Canaanite can avoid that curse is to do what? Yeah, yeah there is an opportunity to repent. If you don't repent, what happens? You'll be judged. This curse on the Canaanites from Genesis 9, though, is treated as a valid curse. It's a curse that God honors. It is a curse that God sees 
Uh, even though it comes from Noah, Noah has a prophetic ministry. This is a curse not only from Noah, it's a curse that is laid down on the Canaanites by God himself. All right? How does this inform Jesus in the book of Matthew talking to this woman? Where is this woman from? Canaan. And she's from the worst parts of Canaan. So she is under a what? A curse. Unless what happens? She repents. She She comes out and is begging, begging Jesus, heal my daughter. Does Jesus respond immediately? Why? What do we need to see that she has? We need to see true repentance. We need to see true faith. So Jesus originally doesn't speak and says, I'm here for Israelites, not for Canaanites. She continues. She kneels down and says, Lord, help me. And then he says something in verse 26 that strikes us as offensive, but it shouldn't. Jesus gives her a a loophole. He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. In this little parable, the lost sheep of the house of Israel are represented by the children. The bread that he is providing is for them. His ministry is for them. And he says it's not right to take uh, stuff off of the table and throw it to the dogs. The word that he uses for dogs there, you can't see this in English, but it's important in Greek. In Greek, there's two words for dogs. There's one word which is for like mutts that run around on the street. Those are nasty dogs. But not every dog is a mutt that runs around on the street. Do some of you have dogs? And some of your dogs are treated as if they are people. They are spoiled. They are basically four-legged human beings. You have some dogs like this? Yes. Your parents go around and say things like, this is my favorite child. And they're not talking about you or your siblings. They're talking about the puppy dog. There is a a word in Greek for strays, and there is a word in Greek for pets. And the word that Jesus uses here is not the word for strays. It's the word for? It's not right, Jesus says, to take some of the children's bread and throw it to the pet dogs, the little poofy ones that sit in your lap and are treated like human beings. The woman in verse 27 picks up on that, though. And she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Some of you have dogs that are inside dogs. Do the inside dogs wind up eating human food? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. You take some of the hard, you know, the, the, the food that your mother works very hard for, and you stick it under the table, and you let the nasty dog lick it off of your hand. You let this happen, do you not? Or some of you have had baby siblings. And baby siblings, what they like to do, what my boys like to do right now, is they like to eat for a minute, and then they get bored, and gravity is super cool. So they take the food, and they lean over their high chair, and they go... And then the dog, we don't have a dog, but if we did, it would come over and and would lick it up. Here, Jesus uses the word for a pet dog, not for a mangy mutt that lives outdoors. And the woman picks up on that and says, okay, you're saying it's not appropriate for these pet dogs to eat from the master's table, but even the dogs get to eat crumbs 
Is that true? It is. And in verse 28, Jesus answers her and says, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is a testing passage. You remember in the Old Testament, God tests Abraham's faith. What does he tell Abraham to do? Yeah, this is a testing passage. This Canaanite woman is under a curse. She's under judgment. The only way she can escape is if she has genuine faith. And Jesus doesn't give it to her immediately. He makes her prove her faith by her works, by what she says. He tests her. He cold shoulders her, but she's persistent. And then he says, well, it's not right for pet dogs to eat from the table the table of the children and she goes no that's not true they get to eat the crumbs and jesus says yes great is your faith she recognizes the loophole that he has left her and 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 he allows her to show her faith by her works by the things that she does by her persistence what type of faith does she have according to jesus by the way great great faith so What is the purpose of this story being told in Matthew? Well, it's written to a what type of church? Jewish Christian church. And these Jewish Christians have trouble with what type of people? And specifically, what type of Gentiles would they have the hardest time with? Canaanites, probably Syrophoenicians from Sidon and Tyre. That's the type they would hate. And what this story does is it shows two things. Number one, does Jesus accept this woman by the end of the story? He commends her faith. She's a true believer. She's not under judgment or under curses. She receives grace. Her prayers are answered. Christ receives this woman. And so the Jewish church must also do what to Gentiles? Yeah, accept and receive them. But this also shows something else that's really important. Is this an easy believism? Does Jesus just automatically let them in? What do they have to show? What does this woman have to have? She has to have genuine, true faith. And that genuine, true faith has to show itself through the works that she does, through her persistence, through her prayers, through her ability to listen to Christ and respond to his voice. She's vetted, we could say. It's not just this loosey-goosey, easy-believism, open invitation. These people, these Gentiles, are accepted into the faith community. They're accepted by Jesus, but only if they have genuine, true, clear faith. So, this maybe helps that Jewish community in that way as well. It's not that... In the gospel, there's no stipulations. It's not that in the gospel, just anybody can can say, oh, I believe in Jesus and, and, and be opened in. They have to have a genuine faith. They have to have a genuine faith that shows itself in the works that they do. Jesus accepts Gentiles who have faith, but they have to have faith. And so Christ here is shown to be consistent with the Old Testament. 
the curse that's on the Canaanites is a valid curse, right? But the curse that's on the Canaanites can be lifted if the Canaanites repent and have faith. Jesus here puts the woman to the test. Does Jesus know that she has faith right from the beginning, by the way? For whose sake does he go through this? Who would struggle with this woman being accepted into the faith community? The church that's, that, that Matthew's writing to? Maybe the disciples, because what are the disciples' reaction? She's aggravating us. Send, us. send her away. Jesus knows from the beginning that she has true faith. He doesn't have to test her faith for his own sake. He does it so that his disciples and the church that Matthew is writing to can see that this woman really has genuine faith. She really does have a place in the faith community. He puts her, test, her, her faith to the test to help her show that she is legit. Book of James makes similar points. Faith without works is what? Dead. You show me your faith without works, and I'll show you faith by my works. The the way that we see that another person has genuine true faith is by the way that they act. How does their faith lead them to live? And with a community that's struggling with the inclusion of Gentiles and the inclusion of Canaanites, Jesus puts this woman to the test, allows her to show her genuine true faith, and by the end of the story, can the disciples say, yeah, send her away? They have to agree that Christ should accept her and should do this gracious work for her. It's not for his sake that he needs to test her. It's for the sake of his followers. It's a hard story, but I think whenever we look at it in more detail, and whenever especially we consider Who is Matthew being written to? We see how this uh, story can kind of help. Parable of the Good Samaritan is kind of the same way. That's in the Gospel of Luke, right? Uh, Samaritans are loved by Jewish people, right? Not at all, not at all, not at all, right? The Parable of the Good Samaritan goes to Lentz to present the Samaritan as the good figure, as the good guy in the story. And again, it's not because Jesus is struggling with accepting Samaritans or something like that. It's because his followers are. And so he presents the Samaritan uh, in the way that he does as this over-the-top good figure in order to help his disciples maybe deal with that in, in, a, in a better way. Um, tomorrow we're going to be looking at chapter 16 uh, in Caesarea Philippi. We may go back if we have time and look at Jesus walking on water. Tonight's reading, you need to finish Mark. So it's going to be Mark 14 through 16. Um, You'll see something really weird about Mark 16 that we're going to have to talk about later on. Um, But come back tomorrow and we'll talk about Matthew 16. Head on out.